Welcome to the Bethel Church Austin Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this sermon by Pastor Renee Evans. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com. But I'm so excited to preach this message that I feel like the Lord has placed on my heart. It is um, about a two to three day message that I'm going to condense into our time together. So there's going to be a lot of things that I skip over, so have grace for me. But like I said, I really feel like the Lord is highlighting this, and it's the subject of revival history. Um, I love revival history, but I have to be honest, I grew up in a Baptist church, and then I didn't follow the Lord for all my teenage years. Got born again at about 21 and went into what you'd call maybe in America or the South, like a Bible, Bible church. Is that what we call them? Which is so confusing to me because I'm like, aren't we all Bible churches? I hope, I hope we are, but anyway. And so I just never really heard this word revival talked about much. And I ended up in Redding, California, doing the school of ministry. And all of a sudden, revival was like the it word. You know, everyone was praying for revival, they're asking for revival, and they're learning about revival. And I remember being on my face before the Lord, and I'm like, God, I want revival. And then I had a moment, and I'm like, I actually am not sure if I know what revival is. (laughs) I know I should be praying it, because everyone else is, and everyone's telling me how important it is, but I don't really know what revival is. And so, obviously, I knew the very basics, you know, that something that is revived is something that is given life, something that is given strength. But I had never known what revival really looked like. I'd never really heard accounts of what it was like when God poured out His Spirit on a group of people. And so, we began BSSM, 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 yeah, so many S's, anyway. And they began to teach us revival history. And I tell you what, I have never been more hungry for the presence of God. My faith has never grown as much as in seasons when I am learning about revivals of the past. And can I tell you that they are the foundation that we currently stand on. So whether we know it or not, we owe modern Christianity to a group of men and women who said yes and who gave it all to Jesus to see him pour out in our, in our world. Amen? You know, Tim Keller is a well-known theologian of our day, and he says this, not just historically but biblically, the three things that revival must contain in order for it to be true revival is that sleepy Christians wake up. Nominal Christians get converted, and non-believers get radically saved. Doesn't revival sound like a great idea to you? (laughs) I don't know about you, but that is what I signed up for. Charles Spurgeon said this, many who are spirit-filled need reviving. So we need to be careful when we live in a spirit-filled environment that we're revived that we're not becoming sleepy, that we're not becoming complacent, but that we're pressing in. And we're saying, God, you did it once, you can do it again. 
and pulling on heaven to see him come in ways that we never imagined. You know, Revelation 19, 10, it says, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And what does it mean? It simply means this, what Jesus has done once, he will do again. In the Old Testament, one of the root words for testimony is derived from a Hebrew root word that they use in that instance, and it says to do again. So now we know when, Jesus, when God tells the Israelites, hey, tell your kids about the things that you have seen. It's not just so that they will, won't forget. It's so that they will pull what has happened, that they will pull the miraculous into their day and age. They will stand on the testimony of what God has done and see him do even greater in their lifetime. The power of the testimony is so important. It teaches us about the nature of God. It shows us how he shows up. And really, it's a historical account of our love story with God, with his love story with humanity. It's important to know revival history because we want revival. We want revival. And we need to press in and to be hungry for revival if we want to see God move the way that I believe we all want to see him move. I am, um, like I said, this is a big subject, and so I'm going to skip over a lot. And some of you who know some revival history is going to be like, how did you skip over that person? I just simply don't have time. I'm sorry. But I will say this. I hope it is my heart and my passion that this would just whet your appetite, that this would take you into a journey of learning about the revivals of the past and knowing what's available. Because the more we share and talk about the testimonies, sharing testimonies is the breeding ground for the miraculous. If we want to see miracles, if we want to see non-believers radically saved and sleepy Christians wake up and nominal Christians be converted, then we need to know what our history is. We need to know what God has done so we can pray that he will do it again and even greater. Amen. I was sharing some of my sermon notes with Joaquin last night, and we were just getting wrecked. Like, oh my gosh, do you remember this story and this story? And sharing the testimonies that we had heard. And we have bookcases in our garage that are filled with revival history books. We love it. And I guarantee, I guarantee that you will leave hungrier and more passionate for God after hearing these stories. And if not, I will give you your money back. <laughs> okay, here's the brief overview. And like I mentioned, it's a huge subject. So we, we actually do equip classes that run for four weeks at a time, and they're two hours each class. And so we have equip classes that are going to be coming most likely in the spring of next year. And they really go into the detail and the nitty-gritty of the lives of these revivalists and, and the moves of God that have shaped our Christianity that we know today. Amen? So if you want to know more, if this makes you hungry, then this is just like the appetizer. 
And you can get some more when we have more equipped classes about it. Okay, I'm going to break it down. This is where I'm going to get a little geeky, a little techy, and a little more like teaching heavy than normal. So I've cut all my jokes out of the sermon just so I can have time to get through. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just didn't have any jokes, so I was like, oh well, might be a boring one. But anyway, okay. All right, so I'm going to break this down and look, there's so many different opinions out there, but there are biblical historians and They'll tell you that there were three great awakenings. They'll tell you there were four, six. I mean, the number really varies depending on who you listen to. And so I have decided I'm running with the six distinct time frames of revivals and awakening that have been poured out. It just is easier for me to keep track of. And some of them just shouldn't be clumped together because they just deserve their own because they're so incredible. Okay, so I'm going to start just briefly... From the 16th century Reformation, so if you don't know much about the 16th century Reformation and John Calvin and Martin Luther and, and the men who really like fought for some of the freedoms that we have today, then I would highly suggest you go back and that you look into them, that you study their lives. But we're going to kind of start after that, and we're going to start with the First Great Awakening in 1727. Ta-da! Okay. So this is commonly called the First Great Awakening, as you have it there. Um, and this actually wasn't the biggest revival in terms of the size of it, in terms of the numbers of people, and even geographically. But this is a distinct period of time where revival broke out across multiple nations at the same time. And so it's worthy of mention, but the beginning of this uh, awakening was traced back to a group of men and women who just, some of their stories are crazy, but it's the Moravian community, and they actually met in a village in Hernhut, and that was called the Lord's Watch, Hernhut, Germany, yes, in case no one knows who, where Hernhut is. I would probably not have if I didn't know this story. <laughs> so this movement began as a 24-hour prayer meeting. And I think I want you to pay attention because every single great move of God that I'm going to talk about, it begins with prayer. It begins with prayer. And that's a key for us. If we want to see God move mightily, then we've got to get on our knees. But this started with 24-hour prayer meetings that lasted for 100 years. 100 years. In the 65 years after that, over 300 missionaries, and you've got to remember, 300 doesn't sound very big to us, but back then from this tiny little community, that was a lot of people. They sent 300 radical missionaries out into the world, and those missionaries evangelized on different continents throughout the world, and most people would be able to trace their Christian heritage back to the Moravian movement. This is what's crazy. They were so sold out for the Lord that they would sell themselves into slavery because their thought was, who will preach to the slaves if we don't go? They sold themselves into slavery. Some of the most notable names 
I'm going to just flick through a couple of really good-looking men right here. This is uh, John Wesley, those curls. I mean, curls get the girls, right? Um, <laughs> but this is John Wesley. <laughs> he lived from 1703 to 1791. He must go down in history as the architect of the 18th century evangelical revival. Um, in 1739, you're going to see another man soon called George Whitfield. He was a friend of Whitfield's. Um, he, John Wesley used to preach in the churches. And George Whitfield was rejected from the churches. And so he began to speak in open air um, gatherings. He would go to the streets. He would go to the minefields. This was happening in England. Um, and he would say to his friend John, hey, I have just seen mass salvation. I'm on to the next town. You come take care of all these people, essentially, who have just given their life to the Lord. And so John would come, and then he would begin to really teach and preach these people. And the Methodist church grew by leaps and bounds when these two men were holding these meetings. And even just for some statistics, they, um, it was estimated that Wesley... Was an itinerant pre- he was an itinerant preacher for 65 years. Joaquin and I in- itinerated for, well, me for five years, and I tell you that was enough. I mean, it was fun, but airplane after airplane after airplane gets real tired real quick. This guy was on horseback. And it was estimated that he traveled 250,000 miles and preached 40,000 sermons on horseback. You know, a really cool story as well is when he was on a boat on his way over to America to uh, preach to the colonies, there was a storm, and everyone was just going crazy, freaking out. The waves were really big, and he looked, and he saw this group, just a few people who were sitting there, just praying, super peaceful. And in the end, he went and spoke to them, and he's like, who are you? And they were part of the Moravian group that was sent. And this is true British style right here as he describes the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But he said, my heart warmed within me. (laughs) You hear all these Americans, they're like, the fire of God fell. And he's like, my heart warmed inside of me. (laughs) So he too was affected from the Moravian community. His brother, Charles Wesley, penned 9,000 hymns many of which were sung all over the world. Tens of thousands were added to the Methodist church during Wesley's mission. And his practices and theology has affected holiness, revivalist, Pentecostal, and charismatic groups right down to this present day. George Whitfield would see mass gatherings of 30,000 people you got to think about this. This is pre-Instagram. 30,000 people. That's a miracle in this day. People were so hungry, and they would come to his meetings, and he would preach. He actually wanted to be an actor before he um, became a preacher, so he was very theatrical in his uh, preaching. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit would fall in his meetings, and there would be mass repentance and salvations that took place. He was probably one of the first uh, 
evangelists, crusade evangelists that there was. There's this man right here, George Whitfield. Meanwhile, over in America, there was another man called Jonathan Edwards. His curls are much nicer, I think. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards served as a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts. He had experienced revival previously, but it had fizzled out, and uh, he actually let George Whitfield preach in his church, and when he did, he spent the entire service on his face weeping because he had given up on the revival of the past. And he was like, God, forgive me, forgive me. And it led to many meetings, and one of the first ladies that was uh, saved in, his, in the outpouring that he was a part of was a lady who they, they say back in the day that she kept well company, meaning she essentially got around the village. And he was actually really not super happy because he was worried that she might quench what was happening. But instead, instead, the masses saw this lady's radical conversion and they became, they started coming to the meetings and they started being born again and receiving salvation. It's kind of like the woman at the well, right? I mean, the greatest revival in history and revivalist is Jesus and the time that Jesus walked this earth. And so it's interesting to watch some of these revivals mirror what was happening when Jesus was among us. Fire swept, revival fire swept through the east coast of America because of this man. And again, you could spend days just talking about him and everything that he has done, but he is probably one of the fathers of American revival history. Our next period of time is the Second Great Awakening, 1792. I'm going to stop at a couple of stories and emphasize them because I think that the Lord is breathing on them, and I think that they're really... Um, relevant for the time that we're in, for the moment of history that we stand in. But this Great Awakening lasted about 30 years, and its effects were so widespread and extraordinary. And there was a moral decline following the War of Independence in America and the French Revolution. Infidelity, rationalism in Europe, and dwindling congregations everywhere. And then God. But God. The beginning of this revival can be traced back to the industrial towns of Yorkshire. That's in England. Um, phenomenal awakenings in Scotland, Ireland, Wales took place, especially among the Methodists. But this is the one I want to stop on for a moment. And this is why I want to stop on it. For two reasons. This revival wasn't a one-man show. When revival swept through this little town in Kentucky... All the preachers on hand who had been baptized in the Holy Spirit, they were all on board. They're like, sign me up. And they were preaching from trees and tree stumps and man-made um, altars and platforms. Thousands upon thousands of people came, and it was declared the first camp meeting because people would bring their tents, and they would stay for days, and some would stay for weeks. And I love that because it wasn't a one-man show. I love it because the more unified we are, the greater God can fall. Amen? It's never meant to be about just one person who says yes. 
It's meant to be about a company of people who say yes. Another reason that I love this revival, it's called the Cane Ridge Revival. It had the craziest manifestations that you will ever hear. I don't say I love it for that reason because it makes me excited. It terrifies me, which is why I love it. Because it makes me remember that God never was nor ever is going to be in a box that I put him in. And that he can come however he wants to come. And even if it looks silly in the eyes of man, it is God. And who are we to say that it is not an outpouring of his spirit? Because I tell you what, there would have been people back then who thought this was crazy. I'm going to talk about two manifestations. I wish I could demonstrate them. Um, I'm not that flexible. (laughs) But... I'm going to get into my stance. I might have to take my heels off. Um, One of them was called the whip. And these young women, the reason it was called a whip is their heads and the top half of their body would thrash so violently under the presence of God that their hair could be heard making soft whipping sounds. And I'm not talking about, you know, whoa, Jesus. I'm talking about their head touched their toes and then flipped back again until the back of their head touched their ankles. That's why I can't demonstrate it. (laughs) But could you imagine seeing that? Does that not just blow anyone else's mind? That is weird, God. Like, why would you do that? Because he can. And sometimes he needs to offend our minds to get to our hearts. Another one of the manifestations... (laughs) Another one of the manifestations that I love was... um, So many people were getting slain in the spirit. And witnesses would say it was like watching a battlefield with strewn bodies all over the place. Hundreds at a time would fall out under the presence of God. But that's not the crazy part. Some of them, music began to come out of their stomachs. The human music boxes music would come out of their stomachs, right? I told you these were weird. These are so good for me to remember. I'm not sure if you'll like me, but if I saw that happening, I'd be like, what is going on? And is that Jesus? That's my first reaction. But the more I read about these and hear about these, again, I'm reminded he can show up however he wants to show up. And it was never about the manifestations. This revival was marked on mass repentance. People falling out when they just came near the campgrounds. Mockers and drunkards would come in to try to sabotage the meetings, and they would go out cold in the presence of God. We could afford to see some people go out cold. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) so non-pastoral of me to say Um, so up to 20,000 people stayed for days and hundreds received salvation these are some pictures obviously it was back in the day so they're very pixelated but you can see the tents in the background there was even an account of a 7 year old girl who got on her dad's shoulders 
They said she preached the gospel so eloquently that the men and women around her began to beg her, tell me how to receive salvation. I don't know about you, but I have a seven-year-old. That's a miracle. (laughs) That's legit a miracle. (laughs) So many people were influenced by this great move of God. So incredible. Okay, the third great awakening in 1830. I'm going to camp here just because I can, and he's one of my favorite people. Um, But one of the reasons that I love this man, Charles Finney. Oh, gosh. Ben and Janessa said amen because they named their dog after Charles Finney. I know, a deep love. (laughs) This was perhaps one of the most significant revivals ever, period. And one of the reasons that I love this is it had the greatest lasting fruit. It was said that when he went into towns and he had these meetings, that the generation after him was still affected by the meetings that took place. The courts had nothing to do and the prisons were empty for years. This is what happens when God shows up. It's never meant to just dwindle at the one man or God. We have to learn how to pass revival from one generation to the next so that we don't see these great moves of God just dwindle. We have to get people pregnant with the hope of revival. And not just that, we have to demonstrate revival. We can't pass it to our kids if we're not doing it. We can't tell them that the sick get healed if we're not praying for the sick and seeing them get healed. Compared to other revivalists at his time, 80% of the people that, had, that were converted to Jesus at his meetings stayed strong believers and even passed their faith on to their children, compared to 30% of most other revivals. 80% this man had. And here's two reasons why I believe, everyone say Renee's opinion, historians and People who know more than me, hold the emails. This is my opinion, not biblical and historical in nature, but they are my opinion. He not only preached the gospel where he saw repentance fall, but he preached holiness. He preached holiness. And I tell you what, if you stood in front of a man like Charles Finney, he's like, but I love my boyfriend and we sleep together. I love Jesus, but I watch pornography. It was a holiness movement and it was passed from one generation to the next with success. We are not here to condemn. We are not here to judge. But we are here to say, hey, this is the standard. This is the standard. And you have someone living inside of you that helps you live to that standard. But if we don't have standards, it doesn't just affect our life. 
It affects the lives of our children and the ability for them to live and experience revival. And I don't know about you, but when I get to heaven, I want to say to Jesus, I did everything that I could to populate heaven and empty hell. And if it's worth sacrificing a moment of my flesh or temptation, then it is a thousand times worth it. And then some. Another reason why I think this man's ministry was so powerful is, again, prayer. There were two men called Daniel Nash and Brother Abel Clary, and they would go into cities before Finney, and they would pray, and they would pray, and they would pray, and they would wait until the heavens opened. And then Finney came in and delivered his message, and the power of God flowed through him, and tens of thousands, eventuating in hundreds of thousands of people became believers. Because two men, I think they get a bit of a raw deal. I mean, I think that they should be just as famous as this man. They were behind the scenes, but I tell you what, they did the heavy lifting. Prayer is so important. It's so important. Finney was able to preach the gospel in a way that inspired men and women not only to receive salvation, but to live holy lives. He cleaned up every community that he visited, and they stayed that way for at least a generation afterwards. You know, this one is so cool. He would ride on train from town to town, and he would be so covered and consumed with the presence of God that him going through a city, he didn't get out of the train. He just went through the city, and mass repentance fell in that city. People started experiencing revival because his presence went through a city. He never preached. No one preached to them. Man, what would it look like? If we were so consumed with the power and the presence of God that we just walked past, we just drove past, and people fell on their faces worshiping God. And a reminder, the reason we're sharing this is because he wants to do it again. He wants to do it again. This isn't just for the old days, for the glory days. Oh, you remember back when? It's for today. It's for today. And the better we get at remembering the testimony and pulling on the testimony, the more our faith and hunger builds. I mean, that's it at the end of the day is, is God is just looking for hungry people. He's just looking for hungry people. You know, Robert Sledden, who is a great revival history um, scholar, if you will, he's written hundreds of books on revival history. He says this, nothing is more dangerous than a church whose fire has gone out. Even if there's an ember, God can blow on it. We can't let our fire go out. You know, even in BSSM, Pastor Bill would say to us, he's like, 
It's easy to burn and be hungry for God when you're in the school of ministry. It's even easier, I mean, it's even easy five, ten years after that. But show me a man or a woman who is on fire for God in 40, 60 years, and I'll show you someone who has revival living on the inside of them. Because we're in this for the long haul, amen? We don't, revival, we don't want revival that's a flash in the pan. We want revival that we can pass on to our kids, not just as it is, but with increase. And teach them how to steward it. But revival is so offensive, you guys. So offensive. And many people can't get past the way that God moves and chooses to show up. And they miss out on a great move of God. They miss out on being part of it. Because I'm just like, God, I don't need to run anything. I don't need to talk. I don't need to do anything. I just want to be there. I just want to be there when you come. There is a proverb in 14.4, and it says this, Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. You'll find that some churches who aren't going after revival, they're real clean really orderly. Oh, they've got great structure. You want a 10-step program on how to be connected into a life group? I'm not saying any of this is bad. This is good. We want people to be connected. But revival and revivalists bring mess. So my question is, are we okay with a little bit of mess and allowing God to show up however he wants? Or do we want empty stalls that are pretty and clean? Because revival is messy, and it will offend you. Oops. Okay, the fourth great awakening in 1857. I have to talk fast. Okay. Just, Just going one back to Charles Finney. It says on the wider international front at this time that his meetings were taking place across America, there were local revivals in various places of the world. Some people combine this awakening with the previous one as it only lasted 12 years, but because of the astounding influence of this man's ministry, it should be seen as quite a separate event. So many people, which we're going to read about in this, in this next section, this next um, period of time, were impacted by his ministry. And like I said, can trace their Christian roots back to revival that happened in this man's ministry. Okay. So this great awakening, sometimes called the third, we're going to call it the fourth just because we like to be rebels, um, was the greatest today in its extent effects and lasting impact. It began slowly in Canada when 21 people were saved and steadily grew to when 25 and up to 40 people were converted each day. And slowly reports of America, um, sorry, slowly reports of the awakening began to emerge from various states in America. Then, I feel like this should be a movie. This is like Right down Shane's alley, 
Shane and Stacy lived in New York, so Stacy took me to Fulton Street where this revival broke out, but I want to read you some statistics. Then, in September 1857, a businessman and a convert of Finney, the guy before, a decade before, began a noonday prayer meeting on Wednesdays in New York in a church on Fulton Street. The small but growing numbers decided to meet daily in October. And within six months, 10,000 businessmen were meeting in similar meetings across America, confessing sins, being converted, and praying for revival. It was a lay-led movement that harvested a million souls in two years. I mean, that's amazing for our day, but you've got to remember the population of America back then was about 30 million. In 1858, from February to June, around 50,000 people a week were added to the church. In a nation whose population was around 30 million. Across the Atlantic, another million were won to Christ by 1865. And this was in Britain, a population of 27 million. Scotland, England, Ireland saw mass conversions. And the Methodist church, which was the main church in that time, grew by hundreds of thousands of people. What would it look like, guys, if 50,000 people got born again in Austin tomorrow? I mean, logistically, what would that look like? Are we ready? Like, we got to get ready. We got to get ready because whether we're ready or not, when God pours out, we better have a way to catch those people. Okay, we're going to move along to this lady right here. Woo! I love this lady. I'm like, oh, she's so sweet. She was not sweet. She was feisty. She was one of the first females ordained in America. Girl power. We like women preachers here. Just, just saying. She really was the first woman revivalist. And she had a pretty rough life. When she was 13, her dad died. Um, and she was sent to work outside of the home to help take care of her brothers and sisters. And she then got married. There's so many details I wish I could go into. but um, She got married and she had six kids. And five of them died. Eventually, the sixth one died as well. But five of them in that period of time died. Then she got pretty sick. And see, she'd heard from the Lord when she was younger that she had a call on her life. But she was like, God, I don't think you got the right person. I'm a woman. And over the years, he kept reminding her, and she kept politely declining. And she was actually on her deathbed and so sick and the Lord said for the last time, if you receive my call, I will heal you. And in that moment, she said yes to God, and she was immediately healed. 
And she got up and she went down to the local denomination and she demanded that she be ordained. (laughs) And she was so feisty that those men ordained her. (laughs) But they were like, let's discourage her at least, you know. There was this one town and they called it the Devil's Den. And preachers before her, men had gone there, and no one could get breakthrough in that city. No one could grow the church. It was a really small church, dwindling, and they're like, let's just send her there. Let's send her there. We'll show her a thing or two. So she went to the devil's den. And at first, everyone came out to see her preach because she was a woman. And she was a phenomenon of herself. But pretty soon, the power of God began falling in her meetings. And not just one by one, but groups by groups began to fall under the presence of God. And she grew that small church and then went on to become their number one church planter in that denomination. (laughs) I like this lady. She outgrew all of her meeting spaces. She had about 30,000 people at her largest gathering, and people drove from across borders and across states to get to this meeting. And again, she had mockers come to say, this isn't of God. And every single one of them had to be carried out. (laughs) Her meetings were known that entire sections would fall out under the power of God. She preached with such boldness and such conviction that they began keeping the tents that she was preaching at open 24-7 because the altars never emptied. They ended up having to take all the bench seating out there because people couldn't fit. Another really fun and interesting thing that happened in her meetings, which may, again, be scary to some, but was that people would just go into these trances. Let's just make people a little more uncomfortable before we move on. No, just kidding. They would go into these trances, and she herself, in the middle of preaching, in the middle of preaching, went into a trance. For three days, for three days, people would come from all the neighboring cities because they didn't believe it. And if there weren't over 5,000 accounts of it, I'm not sure I would believe it too. Three days in this position right here, they would slap her face. They'd put smelling salts underneath her nose to try to wake her up. And she wouldn't come too. She was gone. Gone for three days. And when she came to, she picked up in the middle of the sentence that she left off on without skipping a beat. She didn't even know what had happened to her. They had to tell her what had happened. You know, so powerful were her meetings. And some of her most powerful meetings happened in Dallas. It's just down the road, up, up the road. Somewhere on our road, I should know that. Houston is down, Dallas is up. Okay, still getting used to it. 
But some of her most powerful meetings happened in Dallas. And here's the crazy part as well. People would walk down the streets. And they weren't coming or going from her meetings. But the presence of God in that city was so strong that people in the streets just started falling out under the presence of God. And they would wake up weeping and repenting, asking to know about this man called Jesus. Wow. She had mass healings happen Mass conversions happen. And as I said, tens of thousands of people came to hear this woman preach. And they didn't just come to hear her preach. It was just actually a phenomenon watching her as the power of God fell on her. When she was older, she was living in Indiana and she had, um, I think I have a picture. Yay. It's so funny, like you watch the pictures of her, and as like she starts like this, and as she gets older, she's like, and eventually she's like this. I just thought it was, anyway. <laughs> Welcome to my brain. Um, so this is one of her meetings in one of her churches. Uh, this church up here is in Indiana, and actually Joaquin and I went there a number of years ago, and it's now a parking lot, unfortunately, but we stood there. And we prayed that revival would fall and that the power that was once upon this woman would come upon us and come upon a generation. (sighs) Wow. Yes, God. Do it again, God. I don't just want revival so the church looks good. She, um, she got so old and frail that she would have to have someone, her house actually was just at the back of this hall, um, but she would have to have someone come in and change her and uh, help her bathe and dress her. And then they would sit her in this chair and then these men would come and they'd carry the chair into the meeting and put her on the stage. And she'd sit there and she'd wait. And she'd wait until the anointing of God fell on her. And they say it was miraculous because as soon as the anointing fell on her, she sprung up out of that chair and preached like she was 20 years old. And then when the anointing lifted, she sat back down. They carried her back out. They showered her, dressed her, put her to bed. And every time the anointing fell, her whole body was revived. And she did that up until two weeks before she passed away. And here's another reason why I love this woman is she had every reason to be bitter at God. I mean, if I saw my three babies killed, oh man, I'd be having it out. I would be having to process something fierce with the Lord. (laughs) But she didn't choose to remain bitter She chose to sacrifice her bitterness and give God her yes, her full yes. And revival and lives and families all over this nation was changed because of this woman, because of her yes. She could have got angry that the men wouldn't let her preach, but she just got feistier 
And man, I don't want to think about what would have happened if she had said, Ah, I don't really feel like doing this today, God. The burden, the sacrifice, it just feels too much today. I prefer to be comfortable. Another thing is she finished well. And unfortunately, as you dig into revival history, you will learn about a lot of revivalists who didn't end so great. But she ended well. And she ran her race well. The Fifth Great Awakening, 1880. I'm just going to really quickly skim over this. Um, But probably the most noticeable name uh, during this awakening was D.L. Moody. He, um, He just saw across America and across Great Britain, he saw the largest halls in the land packed to capacity and thousands upon thousands of people receiving Jesus Christ. He was a great evangelist. Other evangelists spurred on by Moody in this generation threw themselves into the harvest field. Sam Jones, Wilbur Chapman, Billy Sunday, Andrew Murray, John McNeil, and almost every single continent across our world experienced revival at this time. Revival hit Japan in the early 1880s, increasing the adult membership from 4,000 to 30,000. The China Inland Mission experienced a large influx of new missionaries. New missions were planted in many unevangelized fields, and revivals were reported in India, Africa, South Africa, Madagascar, Australia, Central and South America. And many describe this resurgence as the missionary revival, which took the flame of the 1859 revival even further around the world, ensuring a strong church base in all nations, just in time for the 20th century Great Awakening. I wish I could go into more detail. Okay. The Sixth Great Awakening, 1880. And if we do a part two, maybe I'll cover just the last hundred years and the incredible revivalists that we, oh my gosh, some of them still alive today that we are running with. Heidi Baker, I mean, that woman is incredible. There was Catherine Coleman, John Wimber, Chuck Smith, Lonnie Frisbee. I mean, it went on and on. Oh, so many good ones. I'm going to do a part two. Just decided. Okay. But I want to highlight just a few um, parts of this one. And the first one I want to talk about is Smith Wigglesworth. Oh, man. If anyone had faith, it was this man. (laughs) I tell you what, he actually wasn't born again until later on in his life. And uh, his wife, Polly, um, which is what they called her. She was a believer, and she one day said to her husband, Smith, she was like, I want to go to church tonight. And he's like, no. And she's like, yes. <laughs> and he's like, no. And they had an argument. He said, if you go to church tonight, I will lock you out of the house. So she went to church, and he locked her out of the house. 
So she bundled up. I mean, this is England, not Texas. So she was cold. And she slept outside the house until the morning. And he opened the door. And instead of going off at him, which I would have, she was like, honey, what can I make you for breakfast? (laughs) Many people say that it was because of her love and compassion towards her husband that he received salvation. Finding a good wife is a good thing. You know, he actually started working in the mines at seven years old. And so he was illiterate. He couldn't read or write. He, um, he then later on in life became a plumber. And his wife, Polly, taught him to read so that he could read the Bible when he was 27 years old. And it was the only thing he read. He didn't read biographies. He didn't read, like, fiction. The only thing he read was the Bible. He had this deep conviction that the Word of God was living and that the miracles that he read about were available for today. It's been recorded, and this is just recorded, so there may be more, but that 14 people were raised from the dead during his ministry. Wait. 14 people were raised from the dead. That doesn't just affect a person. It affects a family. It affects a community. 14 people. And he had some radical methods. Many, again, offend me. One time, he drop-kicked a baby. I mean, you better, you better have heard from God before you drop kick a baby, right? Can you believe that? And the baby was completely healed. That one is still, that one's like, oh, I'm rejoicing, but I'm kind of mad at you, Smith. Like, I don't know. You know, you can go to his home and they say that where his bedroom was, he had wooden floors and there's large indentations in the base near his, the foot of his bed from where he knelt in prayer for hour after hour after hour, interceding and having intimacy with the Lord. I mean, it wasn't carpet indentations. It was wood. And he spent so much time on his knees that the imprints of his knees were indented into that wood. One of his quotes, which I love, is the secret of spiritual success is a hunger that persists. It is an awful condition to be satisfied with one's spiritual attainments. God was and is looking for hungry, thirsty people. He also said at one point, I'm not moved by what I see and I'm not moved by what I feel. I am moved by my belief in Jesus. And if I can encourage you, he has so many books that he has written on the, the uh, faith to believe for healing, healing books, how to increase your faith. I would just encourage you to pick those books up and read them and you are going to get so hungry, so hungry for God reading this man's testimonies. 
Actually, his wife was the preacher. They started this little, like, mission center, and his wife was the preacher. And then one day when he was praying, he got filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was like, let me preach. And he got up and preached, and the power of God fell in that room. And again, he went all over the world doing meetings, and thousands upon thousands of people came to his meetings and were healed. And many more were saved. That's Polly. Oh. And he just looks like a man of faith, doesn't he? Like that KFC guy. <laughs> Not that he was a man of faith, but he just looks like him, right? That's who he reminds me of, anyway. Uh, maybe he was a man of faith. I'm not sure. No offense, Colonel Sanders. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. The Welsh Revival, Evan Roberts, 1904. Whew. I'm going to brush over this one so quick, so I'm just going to read. Is that okay? Okay. On the day of prayer and fasting, Evan Roberts received an anointing of the Holy Spirit with great power in a meeting conducted by Seth Joshua. And it was here that the Welsh Revival began in September 22, 1904. However, the roots of the revival went back further when a young Evan Roberts spent 11 years in prayer for revival. Through a vision he received, Roberts believed that God was going to win 100,000 souls. And during his first few meetings, the heavens opened. God's presence seemed to fill the air and many were prostrated with conviction and others cried for mercy and many were so filled with the Spirit that they pleaded that the Lord would remove, that the Lord would keep their hands on them. We have a little chair in our house, a little wooden chair that uh, we got from from Bill Johnson, who collects revival history that was from the Welsh Revival. It was so cool. It's like rub my face on it. No, I'm just kidding. I don't really. really. Um, But I like it a lot. (laughs) Soon the revival spread to other places in South Wales, and the revival took hold in North Wales, and within six months, 100,000 people had come to Christ. The Welsh Revival was soon the main topic of conversation throughout the Christian world. And wherever the news went, it seemed to cause passionate prayer and began to ignite revival fires everywhere. And Christians across Great Britain turned to prayer and church membership increased throughout the land. The United States felt the aftershock of the Welsh Revival in almost every place. Prayer, conviction, and conversion spontaneously occurred, resulting in unusual church growth okay oh gosh I've got eight minutes I can do this okay oh I love this guy I am not going to talk about him because I don't have time but I will say one thing he was around when the bionic plague was around what do we call it boobonic boobonic I have not heard it say like that, said like that. Bionic. What is that? I mean, a superpower. Okay. No. Boo, 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 bonic. That doesn't sound as cool. Anyway. Um, 
the bubonic plague. <laughs> he went into a, a laboratory or a medical facility and he said to um, the technicians working there, watch this, and they put his hand under a microscope and he told them to put a drop, which just a drop of this would have killed him on his hand. And these men watched in amazement as the disease, as the virus died, shriveled up and died. Anyone else know of a virus that can die right now? He has one of the most prolific healing ministries ever. I mean, the healing rooms were started because of John G. Lake. I mean, you just read about his life. It's incredible. The Azusa Street Revival. Woo! William Seymour. The reason I love this man is because, again, just like Maria Woodworth Edda, he had every reason to be offended and bitter. You know, he got passionate and stirred on fire for God and really wanted the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But he was alive when segregation and slavery was rampant in the U.S. And he actually went to a Charles Parham... Um, Charles Parham had a seminary, a school here in Texas, and he heard of this man, William Seymour heard of this man, and that he was experiencing um, this phenomenon of people being baptized with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And he was like, I want that. But he wasn't allowed in the room when they were teaching those classes. And instead, he stood outside by a window his hunger overpowered his offense. And he stood outside a window and he listened and he cried out to God and he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He went to L.A. and he was actually um, asked to become a pastor of a church down there, but he began preaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they weren't too happy, so they were like, we don't want you preaching anymore. Some of the church members actually took him in, though, and had compassion on him, and he began to hold prayer meetings. And those meetings grew and grew, and some of the most um, extraordinary miracles of God broke out in those prayer meetings. And then it eventuated to Azusa Street. Well, this, oh, I wish I had a pointer. This is him down here in the bottom left-hand corner. In the middle, F.F. Uh, F. Bosworth. That's John G. Lake down there in the corner. Oh, do you know who the other two guys are? I don't know. We don't have time. Um, but they were awesome, I'm sure. Um, and these are some of his prayer ministry team, this, these people up here. Some of the women and some of the men who, who really helped uh, that revival. And this was the building that it took place in. This little warehouse on Azusa Street. Um, William Seymour used to pray for five and a half hours a day for two years. And he was praying one day and he was like, God, I want more. I've got to have more of you. And the Lord said, pray more. I'd be like, what? <laughs> so he began to pray for seven hours a day. And that lasted five years. Seven hours every single day this man would pray. And he was known at his meetings to put an old um, wooden box on his head. 
And he would sit there with his box on his head praying until the Lord told him to take it off. And when he took it off, the Holy Spirit would fall on him and the power of God would hit that place and miracles would break out. This is perhaps some of the coolest testimonies that I have ever heard. And there is a book, I'm actually not sure if it's still in print, but it's called, And They Told Me Their Stories. And it is phenomenal. It is just filled with testimonies, miracle after miracle. The children, there was a glory cloud that would appear on the floor, and the kids would play hide and seek in it. They would try to catch it in jars and take it home. How cool is that? The, depart- the fire department got called numerous times because they would have sightings of flames on the top of the building when the building was not on fire. But when these supernatural flames were present, the most extraordinary miracles probably that I have ever heard of took place. One lady walked in and she had a tumor the size of a basketball on her face, she literally had to hold it up, walking in. And they began to pray for her and watch as that tumor melted off her face. See, these aren't just cool stories. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And if he can heal and dissolve tumors back then, then he can do it today. Another man walked in, and he had no arm. No arm. He lost it in an accident. It was bloody. He had no arm. And they gathered around him, and they began to pray. This is so crazy. And they watched as the bone began to grow. And then behind the bone, they watched muscle and ligaments begin to form. And then skin covered his arm. And by the time he left that building, he had a brand new arm. Another man who for years and years would just have a cigar hanging out the side of his mouth. He got cancer. And it was, uh, his flesh was black and his cheek had been rotted away. He'd lost his gums and his teeth, his lips. Had a big hole in the side of his face. And as they began to pray, his teeth began to form. His gums, his lips, until he walked out of that place with a completely restored face. These aren't just fairy tales. These aren't just like, wouldn't that be cool? This happened. This happened. And it wasn't that long ago. He had a lady in uh, his ministry called Mrs. Carney, and she had a 100% success rate in praying for people to get out of wheelchairs. She actually would move their foot pedals up before she began to pray. It was called the Carney rule that you had to put them up because she knew that if she prayed for someone, they would get up and walk. Hospitals began to bring their sick, and entire sections of the room had people on stretchers and carts that couldn't move, that couldn't get up. And he would say, the Spirit of God would come upon William Seymour, and he'd be like, get up, you are well. And they would all stand up completely healed. One time, a a sign language teacher took his students, 35 of them, to this revival. And they stood in a circle, and one of them received prayer. 
And as he received prayer, his ears opened up. And then like a domino effect, it went around the circle with no one else praying for them. A domino, the Spirit of God moved through their hands until all 35 of those ears were opened. This is the God that we serve. This is what is available. So here are my closing thoughts. <laughs> I am convinced that your yes will take you further than your gifts or talents ever will. Because can I tell you what? If God calls you to do something, can you say no? He'll find someone else. You're not big enough to stop the purposes of God. He'll find someone else. He did throughout Bible history. He's looking for people who are hungry and who are willing to give their yes. You know, Reinhard Bonnke, which hopefully most of you know that name. He, um, he one time had a conversation with the Lord and he's like, God, why did you choose me? Why did you give me this calling and this gift? And the Lord said to him, I asked three people before you and they all said no. You were the first one to say yes. That man has seen, did see 75 million souls won to Christ. These single-handedly evangelized, greatest evangelist of Africa, the continent, just because he said yes. And it's my heart, like in Isaiah, where the Lord says, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? That without any hesitation, that we would be like, here I am, God, send me. But revival is messy. And revival costs something. But I tell you what, I just have to look and listen and read about these stories. And I'm just reminded over and over again that it's so worth it. Our comfortability, our convenience, it's so worth it. It's so worth it. I'm going to ask the team to come back up. But as we talk, and we often do talk about revival here, you're going to hear that word a lot around here. We want it. We're going after it. We don't apologize for it when it comes, even if we can't control it and we don't understand it. My heart is that sleepy Christians would wake up. That nominal believers would be converted and live lives of holiness and surrender. And that non-believers would be radically saved. Man, I want to walk down the street and see my shadow heal someone. I just want to. It'll be fun. I want to watch God do the miraculous through me. I don't want to miss out. Because like I said, he's going to ask you. And you can say yes or no, but wouldn't it be a bummer? Wouldn't it be a bummer to say no 
when you know what he is capable of and what he wants to do. And I'm so thankful for these men and women and so many that haven't been named who gave their ultimate yes so that we could see what revival looks like, so that we could tell our kids and the generations that come after us. I want to see Austin saved. I want to see 100,000 people fall on their face in repentance and conviction and the Holy Spirit and receive salvation. I don't want to read about it only. I want to see it. I want to be a part of it. This life is so fleeting. We need to fix our eyes on eternity. So now, I probably have years and years ahead of me, but now that I know some of this revival history, I know what I'm asking for. I know what I'm crying out for, and I know what it looks like, and I want it. I want the strength of the oxen, even if it makes the stall messy. I want the presence of God to fall in our midst, and I want every single person who comes in here with sickness to walk out well. Because it's the nature of Jesus. The greatest revival that ever was and ever will be was that at the hands of Jesus. And he says, greater works will you do. I'm going to have the team play over us. And I just feel like there's an invitation tonight. Just another layer of surrender. And it's kind of like an onion these last few weeks. Just peeling off the layers. Just peeling off the layers. Oh, God. I have people in my family who aren't saved. I want to be able to preach the gospel to them with such power that they fall into the presence of the Lord and they serve Him all His days. Now more than ever in this country, we need revival. An election isn't going to fix things. Jesus is going to fix things. And we need Him. We need Him. We need Him. So if you feel like the Lord is stirring your heart, then I want to invite you to stand. And just in your own words, I just want you to freshly respond to the invitation. And here's the thing. I mentioned it before. There were some of these revivalists that didn't end so well. Most of them came from broken homes. Most of them were broken and hurt in and of themselves. And God still used them. He's not looking for perfect people. He's not looking for the most eloquent speaker or the person who's the most convincing at delivering the gospel. He's looking for yes. He's looking for your yes. And if you give Him that, 
And that's all he needs. Let's just give him our yes again tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.